you know, you do have a tribe, right? RuPaul talks about this tribe. And I think even if you haven't been on the show, um, you are part of a very large community uh, that is global, that is not going anywhere. And use that, use that to lift yourself and to continue to be yourself and express your art and express yourself in the way that you want. Uh, I think that's the only way really to fight this, is to just continue, you know, drag race goes on, drag shows around the world go on, um, you know, reading to children in libraries should go on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of beauty beauty in all of that. And if it continues, we, you know, hopefully we'll just continue to counter all of the negativity and maybe, you know, in the end, we will win. Well, perhaps the most culturally significant moment for the LGBTQ plus community in the 21st century was on February 2nd, 2009. That was the premiere on Logo TV. Do you remember them? Well, it was the premiere of a strange new reality show that combined a drag racing theme with actual drag queens, a reality competition show that would change much of LGBTQ plus impression throughout America and across the world. And of course, it was called RuPaul's Drag Race. Today's guest is really an expert from a unique seat of the phenomenon of RuPaul, Drag Race, and the culture of drag queens in America. Maria Elena Fernandez is an award-winning journalist who was the first mainstream journalist to be allowed on set to write about the show for the Los Angeles Times. She has a new book about the experience called Don't F It Up. And of course we know she's uh, sampling from RuPaul's famous phrase that we can say, don't fuck it up. So welcome <laughs> Maria Elena Fernandez to Unapologetically Queer. Uh, we really welcome you today. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here. Uh, Maria, first, I, I understand um, that you were invited to the first season. I'm jealous as all hell when I read this, that before <laughs> anyone knew anything about RuPaul's Drag Race, you were invited to a promotional event. I've been to a thousand of those in my life uh, before the show launched. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and that was a, a big uh, publicity event, so it wouldn't have been... Uh, just the LA Times. Um, it was basically a press conference in a hotel ballroom attended by hundreds of TV critics from a, across the country. But it was that day that I really fell in love just watching maybe two or three minutes of, of a teaser that they showed us. Uh, just fell in love with the show. I knew uh, that it would be something that I'd be very interested in following. And I had a feeling that it was going to be a big hit. And uh, so in at the beginning of se second season, because by the time we had that event, the show had already been produced. Uh, so by the time the second season rolled around, I did get to be the first person to visit the set and watch production as it happened. Yeah, now you're an ally to the community, I understand. Want to make sure that that's clear. You go to this press event, uh, very likely you had heard of RuPaul, although, 
RuPaul was well known, but was still on the skirts of entertainment. Uh, uh, not completely mainstream in America. Certainly not like what we've watched in the last uh, decade, uh, last uh, 12, 13 uh, years. Um, when you went to it, um, uh, you had an early feel right off the bat that, that this might be a hit. It, might, it didn't seem strange to you uh, of this combination theme of, of drag racing and drag queens and a reality competition show where drag queens are competing with each other in lip sync. And it, that, that just seemed completely natural to you when you, when you went to this press event? It was just the perfect com convergence of all, all of the things that you love about drag. And I'm, I've been a drag fan always. I grew up in South Florida and I used to go to the tea parties in South Beach before I moved away. And so, yes, I was very aware of who RuPaul was. RuPaul had had a very quiet period for about 10 years. He had been out of the limelight uh, trying to find his next chapter um, and found it in the world of reality TV, which in the early aughts was very hot. You know, there were the Survivor and American Idol and Project Runway and America's Top Model. And this show brilliantly borrowed all kinds of things from all of those shows to create something fresh and new and what was really striking even from those first few minutes that day in that press conference was that all in all of those other shows people have to specialize in one thing you know singing well or sewing and designing clothes or modeling and drag race they basically have to do all of those things and they have to do all those things really fast and really well and i mean who doesn't love drag How, if, if you can't if, if drag doesn't make you smile i um, i feel like you should get checked out <laughs> yeah exactly exactly you know one of the things that i think is super interesting and you know of course uh, the phrase has been coined out of the show so many catchphrases have been coined out of rupaul's drag race uh, from the queens and michelle and and rupaul um but um, uh, spilling the tea is one of the things that has come out of the show. So let's do that. Let's still talk about season one. Um, uh, uh, Loco's Big Gay Sketch Show famously made the joke in the show that has stuck for 15 years on season one, where uh, they talked about it and made fun of it and played with it. And of course, the big um, hit uh, joke line is, why are you so bright, Miss RuPaul? And it was making fun of the production quality of the show in season one. I'm curious from your seat now, and spilling the, the real tea, what, what was your reaction after seizing, seeing the season one in terms of the production quality of reality? Because you weren't watching Survivor quality money. Oh, no. No, no, no. I mean, and anyone who obviously watches TV or covers TV the way I did professionally, you know, oh, okay, so this is more low budget. <laughs> this, uh, you know, you, you I remember in, in there were there were moments in first season where you can kind of see RuPaul tracking his steps, almost like he's trying to remember his marks or making sure he... <laughs> Um, if you rewatch it, you'll you'll catch it now, you know. Um, but what you're referring to is the famous Vaseline filter. The Vaseline which, filter, which actually is not Vaseline filter. Yeah. It was uh, production's attempt to correct the lighting. Um, they were in a very small studio space in Burbank that was very poorly lit. Again, low budget. So. In post-production, they tried to correct that because obviously drag queens want to look their best. 
um, and the lighting just made it look really harsh. Um, but it appears to be Vaseline filter and for until the end of time, that's what it's going to be called. And that's what people <laughs> love about season one and remember it for. Now, here's here's one of the reasons that I love having this conversation with you, because the reporter in you comes out so clearly. Wait, let me technically explain exactly what happened here. And let's talk about you uh, a moment before we get in uh, to your book and, and lots of the detail of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, you've covered entertainment for quite a long time. Uh, for the Los Angeles Times, uh, you worked quite extensively at Vulture, The Daily Beast, Newsweek, and NBC News for 15 years. Uh, yeah. But as you said, you had roots right here in South Florida, writing and working at the Sun Sentinel. Of course, we love the paper. Um, yes. I, I got all of that correct, right, in terms of your biography history you as go. a reporter. Um, I understand <laughs> when you were here in South Florida at the Sun Sentinel, you even wrote about the AIDS epidemic. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. Tell so, me a little bit about your experience in doing that. Yeah. So I, I grew up here. I went to the University of Miami. Um, my first job out of school was an internship at the Sun Sentinel. Uh, when that was over, I don't know if you remember, there was a little paper in Hollywood called the Sun Tattler. Oh, sure. Uh, I went to work there for a few months. It was basically waiting for the Sun Sentinel to have a, an opening because they had expressed interest in hiring me, but I needed to wait it out. And at the Sun Tattler, I became super good friends with a reporter who died of AIDS that year. So we were friends for only 11 months, but we were really close friends. And that experience of watching him get sick really impacted me and made me want to, I had always been interested in covering health and it made me want to specialize in that virus, which in the early nineties was extremely terrifying. Terrible. And um, there was really no way to make sense of what was going on. And all you knew was that a lot of people were going to a lot of funerals and uh, it was very scary. And my editor at the Sun Sentinel, once I did jump and, and join that newsroom, did let me start covering health and specializing. And there was this man named Drew Drake, who was an activist in Fort Lauderdale, was very well known had AIDS and he worked tirelessly to help anyone who had, who didn't have resources, who didn't have money, you know, pay for medications. And so he let me follow him around and tell his story. And, and that was when I really learned what all that was about and the impact on the gay community, uh, because I had access to all of his friends. A lot of them were HIV positive at the time. And, uh, so I spent a lot of years uh, in that world. And at the same time, you know, having nothing to do with AIDS coverage, I just happened to love drag. So sometimes I would go to drag shows in the Keys or in Miami Beach where I lived. Um, and I just stayed connected to that community. To the um, community. And, and what's interesting about that, again, as I point out to viewers, you're an ally to LGBT and, and you're writing about the AIDS epidemic and what it is doing uh, to community in the 90s uh, for the Sun Sentinel. So you've lived here in, in South Florida and you have that experience. Then you are for extended period of time in, uh, in Los Angeles for the LA Times and you come across uh, this event and begin to cover RuPaul's Drag Race. I have to ask you, in terms of uh, getting it right out there, the experience of South Florida, the the, the experience in Southern California. Uh, which community did you like better? And and remember, oh, I'm in I'm in South Florida. 
I made two quick stops in Atlanta and DC along the way too. But okay. um, I lived in LA for a very long time, and LA was basically my home as an as adult as an adult, right? Um, and I am, you know, I'm back home, but it hasn't even been a year yet, and I'm still getting used to being back. There are things that I love about South Florida uh, that I never stopped loving, and I love how multicultural it is. I love the energy. I love that there's a nightlife here that lasts all night. Um, I love the. I love how it's grown and its culture. But I really do miss Los Angeles. And right now we're living in really crazy political yeah. and cold yeah. war yeah. times. Yeah. And my, I tend to lean more towards the California yeah. end of things. So yeah. it's very hard. I want to come. I want to come back to the politics in a minute. But the last question um, before I move out of season one, because I'm really fascinated about this. You're at the Los Angeles Times, and they have this press event on something that really was extraordinary uh, uh, at the time when you did this of this of this drag race, drag queen reality show. Um, how did you convince uh, an assignment editor at the LA Times to allow you to cover? And, and and it's just it must have been such a strange moment to go, you know, I'm I'm going to go to this event and, and talk about drag queens and competing yeah. with each other and lip sync. What was that like? Well, you know, covering that particular press conference, we, that's part of a very a two or three week uh, event in L.A. where all of the networks put on presentations about their shows. So covering that particular press conference didn't really take much convincing, especially because it was hilarious. Uh, the way RuPaul behaved at that press conference was really wild. And so it just gave you a lot of color and interesting things to write about. So that part was not difficult. And even getting an editor interested in the show itself wasn't hard at all because my editor at the time was a lover of drag and loved the show and even had met RuPaul before. It was, it was surprising to both of us though that once I visited the set and came back with the feature story that we wanted to do, that you know everybody else got on board. I mean, it was a huge Sunday cover, full page Sunday cover story. And the picture was a gigantic picture of RuPaul and Debbie Reynolds, who was a, a guest judge on season two. Um, and for that to be the Sunday, which was the prime spot in LA, the Hollywood industry wanted to be on that cover on Sunday. And for it to be a giant photograph of RuPaul and Debbie Reynolds with a huge story on this show that was, you know, on the cusp of changing America uh, was a real triumph, you know, it, it, for, for both me and my editor. That was that was a real success. Wow, that's an we're awesome about, story. We're talking about 2010. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Maria, uh, for those people that didn't get to be in that original press launch, when you say... Uh, RuPaul uh, was so out there and and animated. What kinds of things did she do with that to make so, you say this all these years later? So so RuPaul was not in drag, um, which I thought was fascinating that RuPaul came as RuPaul. And uh, he had three contestants with him, um, Chanel, Angina, and Bibi Sahara Benet, and they were in drag. And so there were these really tall, beautiful, gorgeous, very ornate people surrounding RuPaul on stage. And RuPaul wasn't having it. He, they wanted him to sit down and do a Q&A and he wouldn't sit down. 
and they would ask him things like, you know, so the clip that we just saw, um, it shows that you're kind of uh, taking from top model, you know, you're borrowing from uh, from one of the things they do on top model, and he would just snap back, oh, please, you know, and he, 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 he would just say these really funny jokes about, I, I, we were here first, who cares? Uh, who cares? He, he has a really funny line where he's like, who cares where this idea came from? Maybe it came from a stall in West Hollywood, in a West Hollywood <laughs> nightclub. <laughs> but we're here now, you know, like he just wasn't doing the normal thing that producers do at these press conferences. And it caught a lot of attention. It was really fun to be at. Um, and the rest is herstory. Yeah, herstory. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and your book documents these stories. Don't F it up. I'm curious, even with the the history that you've had as an as a journalist, professional ally, eye of uh, of the show. Why did you decide to write the book? So it actually came to me. It um, I had written a story for Vulture in I think it was 2017 uh, when season nine had finished, and they earned a whole slew of Emmy nominations that was brand new to the show, which was a very different thing. For a show, a, a TV show in season nine to start getting Emmy nominations um, is really unheard of. By the time a show is in season nine, it's on, it's on its way out of television. And so I had written a story looking back, sort of like a mini version of the book. It was like looking back at uh, these nine seasons and how did this happen? How did this show with this Vaseline filter that nobody thought would even make it to season two? A lot of people didn't. Um, um, a lot of critics didn't. And um, so I had done a story kind of looking back and talking with the producers and some of the queens and RuPaul and an agent, uh, PJ Mark uh, out of New York called me and said, I, I really like this story and I think it could be a book. Would you be up for it? And it took a, it took a few years to get it all figured out, but he finally got Wonder, World of Wonder on board. And so it was a collaboration. You know, they were very involved. I did all of the interviewing, I did all of the writing, but they had a say in editing the story um, in the end. And so it's a collaboration with the production company. Mm. And, and some of the uh, favorite stories that uh, you tell, uh, uh, what, uh, what do you love? Uh, give me an example of, of something you just love that you told about in the book. Um, I mean, there's so many, you know, if, if you want to go on the, because the book has a lot of uh, funny moments and it also has a lot of heart and, and uh, you know, people opening up about past pain and challenges. If you want to go the fun route, um, I really had a good time uh, with the season five queens talking about whether Jinx was faking narcolepsy or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that and and Jinx's own admissions in that chapter are really surprising and eye-opening. Um, I love Jinx Monsoon. And uh, so that was, you know, that was just something that was really funny where you have people like Alyssa and Roxy and Detox all debating, was she sleeping? Wasn't she sleeping? I never saw her sleep. I did see her sleep. Oh, she was, you know, she was forcing it. She wasn't forcing it. And then you have Jinx kind of telling the truth, which was an, an unexpected truth. I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but it was an unexpected truth for me. Right. <laughs> right. And how about um, uh, an example of a humorous moment? Uh, give me an example of a, uh, a touching moment that you tell. That's a well, favorite. Well, you know, so, 
So we we all know the story of you know Angina in season one, a uh, huge moment uh, revealing that they were HIV positive. Um, but what was interesting uh, digging more into that was that Angina had no plans to reveal that. There were two producers on set that knew that Angina was HIV positive because Angina had to be allowed to take medications. Um, but there was no plan at all to use it in the show. Angina had not come out to the, to the family as, you know, HIV positive, had been, I think maybe at that point only diagnosed for a year or so. And, um, and then, you know, on stage, because Angina wins that challenge, which happens to be the Mac Viva Glam, which is connected to HIV, you know, the HIV charity, um, just kind of decides to let it all out and, and speak on it. And so hearing, you know, not just Angina talking about what it meant to them to do that, but the producers talking about how, you know, they were trying to hide you know, they were just sobbing backstage and like they, you know, they didn't want that heard on camera. They didn't want the queens to hear them. Just how difficult all of that was about how proud they were of Angina. And then in the end, how that ended up being really the telltale sign that this show had something special to it. Yeah. That the show was not, that the show was not gonna just be a show about having fun and telling funny jokes and seeing uh people perform on stage, but that you were actually going to go behind the scenes and see the transformation that happens internally for the artists as they become, you know, whatever. You know, Maria, it's, it's so interesting to me because you tell both uh, sides of uh, the same coin uh, from, from the book. Um, Don't Fuck It Up is, of course, uh, RuPaul. It's the absolute epitome of RuPaul. Mind, body, spirit, mouth, attitude. I'm curious in terms of the labeling of the book, why did you choose that as your title? Don't F it up. Why, why make the choice of all of the things that are connected with the show? Why did you choose that? Um, it actually was not my choice, I'll be honest. It was the choice of the production company. And But I think it's exactly what you just said. I think it is there's no way that you see that title and you don't think of RuPaul and you don't know what that means when RuPaul says that. Um, so I think it, I think it had the perfect sounding, uh, it had the perfect tone. You knew reading that title that you were going to have a lot of fun. You were going to hear a lot of tall tales, you know, the people were going to spill the tea, um, but that it also uh, was going to be very real. Hmm. I, um, I, I want to ask you, I want to take the opportunity. I have uh, Michelle Visage's book, uh, Diva Rules, uh, <laughs> and, and I want to do some compare and contrast uh, on it. Um, uh, I, I, had, uh, I came uh, and did a lot of work uh, with uh, RuPaul's Drag Race in a different way. Um, I came in uh, into season three uh, with Alan Chuck and uh, became a sponsor of the show and coordinated the, the, the national and international cruise and travel program uh, for all of the queens uh, from RuPaul and Michelle. And uh, recently, as you know, here in South Florida, my book, uh, my RuPaul uh, Diva Rules book from Michelle is damaged because our studios got flooded from the 
uh, massive flood that took place here in Fort Lauderdale in, in uh, April. Uh, but it's oh, still yeah. a cherried, uh, cherished book. And I just want to read, because so many people have asked me to share this, of Michelle's um, message in Diva Rules. Um, uh, Michelle's message to me is, My darling Al, since you can't afford to buy a book, here it is for free. Love and adore you from the depths of my vagina. And I'm lucky to call you my friend. I love you truly, Michelle. Now, uh, I send uh, my love to Michelle and her book, Diva Rules. It's always um, uh, cherished. Um, now that uh, you are now a author uh, on the uh, RuPaul Drag Race Experience, whose book is better? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you, uh, Maria. Um, Michelle will be on the phone seven minutes later. It's a great book, and so is yours. Um, I'm, I'm curious in terms of uh, all of the, uh, the evolution of what happened at RuPaul's Drag Race. You talk about the Emmys uh, that start uh, in season nine. It has become one of the most decorated um, uh, reality television um, shows uh, in history. How did your coverage evolve? So you're at the pre-broadcast and then you have followed this show all the way uh, since. Um, how, how from your eye, how has the show actually evolved and, um, and how has its legs lasted as long as it has? How did they accomplish it from your journalistic eye? Um, so there's a few things. The, as the show, uh, grew, um, and the budget expanded, you know, they got better stages. They, um, had a long list of celebrities that wanted to be judges. Um, all of a sudden they weren't looking for judges. Like people just were calling in saying, we would love to be on the show. One of them was Lady Gaga who expressed, uh, a uh, interest to RuPaul personally at an event that they were at. And, and Lady Gaga really um, helped usher that, that show into that new era, which is when the awards started. Um, it happened coincidentally when MTV had decided, MTV Networks had decided to move the show from Logo to VH1, uh, which gave it a broader audience. And now you have VH1 plus Lady Gaga in the season premiere of season nine. Um, and the show just blows up. And that was the year that they got all the nominations and then they had the wins. And ever since then they've been winning and they have become the most decorated reality TV show in history. Yeah. And RuPaul is the most decorated reality TV show host um, in, in history. But you know, the, the show's interesting because uh, the OG seasons, you know, seasons one through five, uh, a lot of people have a lot of affection for those seasons because those were the seasons where the 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 artists had to really work at everything on their own. They had to make a lot of their own costumes. Um, you could see that there was a lot of work and uh, blood, sweat, and tears in their work. Um, now you're seeing uh, the younger queens that are coming in the later seasons, you know, they're social media influencers. They already come with a lot of success. They may not necessarily be performers out in the world that people know from like the club circuits or the theater venues, 
but people know them from social media and they come in with millions of followers sometimes yeah. and they already have a lot of money and they have beautiful costumes that have been designed for them yeah. that they bring to the show. So you're seeing like a different caliber. Um, you're seeing like the change in drag where it used to be very do it yourself to now there's a whole economy of drag helping the queens. You know, like the, you know, you'll talk to Raven or Raja, they'll say, you know, now you, I just click, you know, and there's a website with all the wigs and I just order my wigs and there's the wigs. It didn't used to be like that. I, yeah. Sometimes I, you know, I didn't have money. I would have to make my own wig um, from something I found at Party City or something. Um, oh, I mentioned Party City. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if everybody knows what that reference means. I, it, it, it's, I'm, it's curious to me. Uh, you mentioned Jinx and you talked about uh, early seasons. Uh, in, in your eye uh, of watching and documenting the experience and the evolution of RuPaul's Drag Race, um, uh, queens that are particular favorites, uh, favorites of yours that you've watched that you just thought, wow, this person is. Uh, any, any particular queens? Oh, yeah. I mean, many, many are my favorites for different reasons, you know, but obviously Jinx Monsoon is a powerhouse. Um, I love Raja. I, I always loved Raven. I, I'm a strong supporter of Raven, believer that Raven got robbed. Um, <laughs> Raven got robbed. <laughs> yes. Um, um, but, I mean, there's so many. Alyssa Edwards, uh, Shea Coulee. Uh, I don't, I, I feel like I'm going to leave a lot of wonderful people. Oh my God. Um, um, adore. I love adore Delano, uh, Bianca Del Rio, Bob, the drag queen. I mean, there's, what you do you just think about on. Shangela? Shangela's had great oh, crossover. I love Shangela. Yes. I love yeah. Shangela. Shangela. Yeah. Another one that got robbed. Should have yeah. won all stars. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, she got she got robbed of multiple seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. But I feel like All Stars was really the yeah. one she should have won. The real tough one. And I'm <laughs> I'm also curious, Maria, uh, from your eye, your professional journalist eye, uh, any particular season that you just said, "Wow, this is the season of seasons." Any is there one that meets that standard? Yeah. Um, I think season five, if you, yeah. I think if you ask most people, season, season five is, is their favorite. And um, why for you is season five? I, I think, I think that season five is the moment that you knew, oh, the show has arrived. The show knows what it is. The show can make superstars. It had, I mean, it was a wonderful, I mean, you had Alaska, Detox, Jinx. Coco Montrese, Alyssa Edwards, I mean, back rolls, narcolepsy. <laughs> you had the, the, the really, really tough uh, moment with Roxy on stage when they, when Roxy admitted what, what had happened in her childhood. That was, yeah. that was another really, that was a, you had classic um, lip syncs between Alyssa and Roxy. So I think, I think, um, by season four with Sharon Needles, uh, you had seen the show um, move in a different direction. Um, Sharon Needles gave permission for a drag artist that didn't fit like the pageant bill or the comedy queen bill, you know, who were a little bit more quirky and eccentric. Um, that gave permission for people like Jinx, you know, to come to come forth and be themselves. Um, 
And so I think that, but I think that season was really great. And then season six following it was also really great with yeah, Bianca. See, and, and well, and I, I'm so glad that uh, uh, you say that because I love season five. It would be a second favorite, but favorite season is season <laughs> six. Right, exactly yeah. uh, the opposite of what you've said. And I was sitting here thinking to myself, you know, uh, people in Reddit are going to watch our conversation and there's going to be 100,000 people and 50,000 of them are going to agree with me and 50,000 of them are going to agree with you. And isn't that yeah. the beauty of the show? Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, definitely. It's always between five and six, but that's not to say, you know, I mean, so there were other really great moments. I mean, season nine is, is one for the ages with uh, the finale with the roses, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so, I mean, there, it's hard to just pick on, on, you know, pick one because there's reasons that all of the seasons kind of build on each other. But I do think that five was like where the show peaked and became something else. Yeah. It, and it, and speaking of that, to you, uh, we talked about season five and season six. They've just recently announced season 16. Wow. Same. I, uh, Maria, do you feel like you're getting old? Season 16 <laughs> has been announced. Oh, I, I know I'm getting old. <laughs> right. And also All Stars 9. And, and uh, you know, I knew, uh, and I've, I've said this repeatedly, I'm curious if you agree with this. I knew in watching All Stars 7, uh, All Stars 7, I think, is the single greatest season of all RuPaul Drag Races. And when you consider how many seasons and how many international seasons uh, had been done and then you're able to achieve that in the seventh season of all-stars it's just that was amazing that that level of entertainment quality of a bunch of drag queens lip-syncing you know i marginalize what they do because it's not that but it's, right. it's just an amazing uh experience um of all of the shows all over the world do you have any particular favorites uh, in what you've seen in uh, the inclinations of all over the world? Um, well, recent, recently I got into Mexico. I love Valentina as a, as a host, uh, but I do like the UK show a lot. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and I can't let you go, uh, Maria, without uh, you alluded to it at the top of our our conversation. I can't let you go. You're you're here in Florida, so you know exactly what's going on in Florida, and that's the politics. Uh, Florida, Tennessee, Texas, other states, but especially he who shall not be named, Governor Ron DeSantis. I just named him. Um, what would you say to him if you had the opportunity to say, you know, this is my experience uh, with drag, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, and drag culture, and here's my observation and you had the opportunity to sit in front of uh, Governor DeSantis for a few minutes, what would you tell him uh, about what you think about drag and, and what he's doing uh, to vilify drag in Florida and in America? It's very difficult being in Florida because of that. Um, coming from Los Angeles where it's just a very different um, experience and cultural feeling. Um, to me, you know, what I would say to him is that to me, drag um, touches on the very best in people. It lets, it let, you know, you have RuPaul saying, you know, we're all, we're all born naked, the rest is drag. Because there is that, if you, t if you allow yourself to, 
to feel it and and understand the art of drag you get that what it is is somebody allowing themselves to be themselves someone finally giving themselves permission to be themselves in totality and i know that sounds really heady but what i mean is um you no longer have to hide you no longer have to be just one thing you accept that there are many sides of you and you have the talent and the creativity and the imagination to bring it out and share it with the world and to me if you know drag drag can make you laugh drag can make you cry drag is entertaining drag um drag really brings out in you not just whatever was painful about you but all of the things that are beautiful about you and to me to try to say that that hurts people or that that's something that we should be afraid of or that it's bad for our children it's just ridiculous because it's really about integrity and being honest and being your full self and allowing people to be their full self and what you see on that show that is so magnificent is that yeah you're laughing with jinx's jokes on stage but when you hear jinx talking about their personal journey and how they're able to um become all of jinx which means everything that jinx does which means uh, accepting that Jinx is non-binary or that Jinx is a singer or that Jinx is hilarious. You know, all, all of the different aspects of being a person are expressed in drag. And to try to minimize that or to make it seem like it's something negative or scary is wrong and it's shameful and I, I just don't really understand why we're headed in the direction that we're headed. Um, and I feel like the book was perfectly timed because it is a reminder of all of the beauty that there is in this community, everything that this community offers and everything beautiful that drag adds yeah. to the world. That's beautifully said. And and um, your book, Don't F It Up, uh, literally that's what happened. This spring uh, at Queer News Tonight, we covered very closely uh, something historic in America as hundreds and hundreds of drag queens uh, rode buses from all corners of Florida to the uh, capital of Tallahassee to literally in drag march on the capital. Uh, what, uh, from your standpoint, you, uh, you have witnessed history as a reporter in multiple outlets, especially the Los Angeles Times. What did you think about uh, a drag march on a state capitol and, and what that says about the drag community? Oh, I, I think it shows the strength, the resilience, the, the uh, attitude that, you know, we're here and we're not going anywhere. It was a, you know, we've come a long way. Things may not be perfect, uh, but, you know, because of the show, uh the world has been transformed like people now go to drag con with their little kids in drag to meet their favorite drag artists there's parents who have learned how to accept their children uh you know when you talk to people like raja you know who are one of the older queens um they may not have had that in their lives um and to now have someone or some forces trying to take us back to a time where that acceptance wasn't there 
that's unacceptable. So, you know, to me, to see the march, it's beautiful. It's it's inspiring. You know, you it reminds you of the march on Washington in the 90s, you know, where RuPaul performed um, um, and really caught a lot of attention. Uh, and people were saying, we're going to have our first uh, gay president. It's going to be RuPaul. Yeah. Uh, there's a yeah. reason for that. You know, because those moments are really important and 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 special, and uh, I hope that there's marches every week. You know, it's interesting uh, to me, Maria. I don't know if you have heard. We've reported on it just uh, this week. Um, the influence of the show and and uh, RuPaul's Drag Race and the march on uh, the Capitol here in Florida uh, motivated one of the participants that participated in the march. Uh, a drag queen in Key West who talked about how influential RuPaul's Drag Race was to her. Mm -hmm. uh, the drag queen is Erica Rose, and she has announced that she is going to be running for the state house uh, of in representing Key West against the Republican-held uh, two-time uh, seat in Key West. So a drag queen, for the first time in history, is running for the state house of representatives in Florida, and if she wins, will be the first drag queen in history to hold public office in uh, the state of Florida. What do you think about that? Let's get her elected. What can we do? The last thing I want to ask you about, uh, you have this uh, book, Don't F It Up, and, and how uh, you illustrate the story of really the last 15 years of RuPaul's uh, Drag Race. I remind everybody that Maria is a LGBTQ plus straight ally to our community, both in terms of AIDS, in terms of uh, drag and the LGBTQ community. But Maria, as you know, many, many uh, drag queens in Florida and all over the country are scared about the politics and, and their reactions and how they're being criminalized. Um, your book, don't F it up and your experience of watching uh, the RuPaul um, drag race experience in the way you have, what would you say to drag queens in terms of uh, keeping their chin up uh, literally and, and uh, about the fear that they have of what they're watching? What would you say? I mean, it's natural. I have fear too. You know, I, I feel it. What is happening? You know, you hear, you hear every day about some new change and some new scary thing that they're doing. But you know, you do have a tribe, right? RuPaul talks about this tribe. And I think even if you haven't been on the show, um, you are part of a very large community uh, that is global, that is not going anywhere. And use that, use that to lift yourself and to continue to be yourself and express your art and express yourself in the way that you want. Uh, I think that's the only way really to fight this is to just continue, you know, drag race goes on, drag shows around the world go on, um, you know, reading to children in libraries should go on, uh, you know, there's a lot of beauty, beauty and all of that. And if it continues, we, you know, hopefully we'll just continue to counter all of the negativity and maybe, you know, in the end, we will win. Very well said. And and your book, Don't F It Up. How do you recommend people uh, get your book? What's uh, What is some of the favorite ways for you to uh, go about getting the book? Um, I believe Shop Queer still has some signed copies. Mm -hmm. um, so I would start there. If, they're, if they've sold out, 
Um, my favorite is the indie stores. Uh, of course, you can find it, you know, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I'm not going to be mad about any of that. But um, if you can uh, find it at your indie store or ask your indie store to order it for you, I think that's even better. Yeah, coming from RuPaul's Drag Race and RuPaul and a hundred and uh, hundred plus queens in RuPaul uh, Drag Race, American history, and and many more internationally. Um, going to an indie bookshop, I'm sure everybody would cheer uh, that embracement. Uh, Maria, it's been a pleasure meeting you. I love this uh, because uh, I take so many jabs at Happening Out <laughs> Television Network and Hotspots Magazine because I bring up RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race all of the time. And every time I do, all of my castmates and other reporters, they always make jokes of how, about how much money RuPaul pays me to talk about RuPaul's Drag Race. And we don't do that because just like you, we love what the platform represents, right? Yes. We do. Maria Elena Fernandez, thank you so much. Uh, for joining us today on Unapologetically Queer. It was my pleasure.